in a world full of complex challenges. We need more open-hearted opportunities to express ourselves. In a world full of heated debate, we need more open-minded opportunities to listen to each other. In a world full of fear and anxiety, we need more chances to chill and turn toward one another. Join us as we host conversations with educators, artists, activists, community members, and youth to surface the intergenerational wisdom we need to understand, adapt to, and solve the urgent issues facing humanity. Welcome to the second series of the Chill Podcast. This is Chill, that's C-H-L-L, which stands for Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise. We're all here and we're all ready for another conversation. In this series, we're exploring the topic of how climate change is changing classroom. In episode five, we introduced the topic. And in the last episode, episode six, we talked about extreme weather in terms of flooding, heavy rain, and how it's affecting teaching and learning. We talked to some teachers who live in Louisiana and Florida to get their perspective on how teachers and students are responding to these events as they happen during the school year. And today we are turning to Paradise, California, where a wildfire climate catastrophe in the fall of 2018 ripped through a rural town, killing 85 people and torching 19,000 homes, businesses, and other buildings. It virtually raised the town in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And today we're going to talk about what we can learn from the Paradise community. But before we get started, let's check in with each other. And Lois, will you start us off? Sure. It's been cold, but not very snowy here in Boston. And I am definitely in a hibernation mode. I'm really enjoying being inside most of the time and riding my bike and going out on winter walks with my ski poles so I can make sure I don't fall on the black ice. And I'm just really, I'm, I'm in a good sort of inward looking kind of place. Hey, this is Callie. I'll go next. I have a new granddaughter that is like, I can't wait to show you guys pictures and she's just so adorable. And she lives in Portland. So I haven't met her in person yet, but I get to go meet her in person soon. And, you know, everybody says that if you could have grandkids first, everybody would. And having grandkids is better than having kids. And yes, my grandchildren are delightful and wonderful. But for me, the very most rewarding part is watching my son and my daughter, who also has children, watching them become parents. When I watch my son be a husband and father and the sacrifices he makes for works and the priorities he's able to put in place, that was one of the blessings of COVID. He learned as an engineer, he can work from home and he's now committed to work from home and fathering is his top priority. Very few men had that privilege when I was raising my kids and to watch that is just extraordinary. And to watch my, my daughter become a mother and the gifts she brings and the, the gentleness with her children and it, it, that's just the funnest part of being a grandma is still watching my own children. But my grandkids are great too. We went to the dinosaur museum with the two and a half year old and, uh, and nine month old grandson. And oh my goodness, my two and a half year old knows more about dinosaurs than I will ever know. <laughs> They're so much fun. And on the other end of the spectrum, I took my mother on her first vacation in 10 years last weekend. I had a conference. I'm here in Utah. We had couple weeks ago, huge, huge, horrible snow formed, several feet of snow. Um, our ski resorts are filled. And, and now we're having more rain and the snow in my yard is gone. But we travel to St. George where it's significantly warmer and you get out of the snow. My mother's been caring for my 
father for a lot of years and his physical ailments kept him from traveling much. He, he was um, just a little bit more limited. They would go to their cabin and that's about as far as they could go. So he passed away a year ago and she's now feeling well enough after having shingles and her own things, but she's taking care of herself and doing really well. So I talked her into going to St. George with me, dropped her off to my sister's that lives down there. And she spent a couple of days with my sister while I went to work meetings. And then when I got done, we took her into Zion's and took her up on a couple of hikes that she could do. And she had her pole and there was a little bit of snow in Zion's National Park and it was gorgeous. And she doesn't remember ever being there. They did all of Southern Utah. In my childhood, we did all of Canyonlands and all of Lake Powell, beautiful places of Southern Utah. But she really may not have ever seen Zion's because we were boaters instead of hikers. And it was just extraordinary watching a 90-year-old in good health with a bright mind take in the beauty of Zion's and her first vacation in 10 years. And it was extraordinary. And it makes me dream of a long life. And it makes me admire the wisdom and the, the things that she brought to that moment. Um, seeing through her eyes was as refreshing as seeing through, you know, my young grandchildren's eyes. And that was really a, a wonderful experience. That's my check-in. I'll uh, check in next. This is Heather. And I am sitting in a sort of psychological embodied space around a principle that I learned from a personal trainer this week, who isn't my personal trainer, but who I hope will be soon. <laughs> I told him while I was exploring, you know, I've, I have this 6am exercise routine going for me now. And it's great. I go exercise at six in the morning and then I hide in a coffee shop from seven to nine to get homework done. And then I go home, I do my family stuff and get to work. And it's really serving me. But I am mostly just doing yoga and cardio and I know I need strength training. And so this personal trainer, I told him about my goals and how I've had hip and back pain for the last, you know, 10, 12 years. And he said, I see this a lot with dancers because they're so hypermobile that they experience this kind of pain because they have this hypermobility that isn't paired with the right strength for stability. And I was like, this is resonating. It's very understandable. Instead of going into the stretch as far as I could, I stayed in a smaller range of motion and then stretched from there. And I experienced these new sensations that were so pleasurable and so curious to me. And I didn't feel the pain in the hip and the back and the places that I often feel pain because I'm going into my larger range of motion without having the strength to do so. And I loved it. It was so exciting. I'm like, this is great. He's definitely going to be hired by me soon. But I have to use up my other passes first. <laughs> then I went to the coffee shop to do my homework. And I started thinking about my embodied experience in my yoga practice, which I mostly set the intention in my exercise practice to integrate whatever it is I need to work on my master's thesis that I'm working on because I'm studying embodied design. And I truly believe that what I do with my body and how I attune to it will inform my writing, my research, and my thinking. And that my body will think in yoga class without me feeling cognitive thought. And that that's what my research requires. So being the hypermobile producer that I am, getting into the psychological realm here, like I'm hypermobile in my, in my talents, meaning like I'm a, I'm a multi-hyphenate person with many, many skills. And I can do so many things. 
and I can produce at a very high volume. But what I learned from my embodied practice this morning is that I need to be, I'll be a little stronger if I'm a little smaller. And if I keep that hyper productivity in a a smaller range, then I will find new pleasurable sensations from the focus and the attention that I'm giving that smaller space. And so that is how I am today. I am feeling stronger by choosing to be a little smaller and less hypermobile and less hyperproductive. Wow, Heather, that's great. You know, I feel like I always learn so much from you. And I also love checking in after all of you. I feel like, oh, there's so many connections. I feel the lowest I've been hibernating. It's here in California. We have been having a very severe winter. We have had many people die and flooding and loss of property with atmospheric rivers and cyclone bombs. And it's been very dark. My daughter came to visit for New Year's and we watched The White Lotus. And by watching The White Lotus, I got introduced to the Italian actress, Monica Vitti, who uh, sort of inspires some of the plot and actually some of the actual cinematography from her films. And so I started doing some research on Monica Vitti, who just died in February, I believe, of this year at the age of 90. But when she was 68, she got married to Roberto Russo, who is a very handsome man who is still alive. He's 75 years old. And At the age of 68, she married someone who she had this great love affair with, marriage, for 22 years. And so, Kelly, I'm just like really also connecting to this idea of the gift of old age and the contemplating that life can be full and long, and it's so beautiful when it is. It's it's a beauty to age, and so I've been being inspired by that, and so the story of your mom makes me think about that, and then Heather, so it has been a hard winter for me because the weather has been so dramatic, and also there are different, my brother's having some health issues, and there's just a lot of things going on in my family that feel sort of worrisome, But every morning at six o'clock, I go to the yoga studio around the corner and it's dark and it's warm and they make me do burpees and use weights and work hard and sweat. And what I really think is the importance of processing things through our bodies. And our bodies are these great vehicles that we don't use enough, I don't think. And so listening to you talk about what you're learning about, it seems to me like scale. And I feel that's very insightful for me because I'm going to think about that. Because one of the things I've been feeling, especially, well, with people in my family is that sometimes I'm too much. Like I try to tell everybody what to do and it's not helpful. And if I can spend more time in my body, learning from my body, sort of staying with myself in a sense of scale, that feels like a positive thought for me this morning. So uh, thank you for that.
I'll begin by jumping into our topic for today, which is talking about the school community in Paradise, California, and what is happening there four years after the tragic Paradise Fire in November of 2018. I talked to my cousin, Michael, who teaches at the Paradise Middle School, and he is a PE teacher. And so that's kind of interesting, just thinking about our check-ins, that Michael is such an important presence in his school, and I wonder if there is something about his connection to his body and the physical lives of children that is sort of helps him to process and be the leader that he is there. So I asked my cousin Michael if he would share with me so that I could share with all of you and our listeners about what it was like four years ago when he went to school that day, November 8th, 2018, and how the Paradise Fire is impacting their community four years later. As probably everyone knows, in California, we have been suffering from very severe wildfires that are due to a 20-year drought that we are in. And on November 7th... And to forest mismanagement too, right, Louise? That they haven't been doing any care of the forest that would reduce the underbrush. So you've got this tinderbox ready to burn, and then it got really dry. That's true. I think that we are learning new knowledge about what it means to have healthy forests where fires burn in natural ways. So I'm not sure that it was mismanagement for the last 20 years, because I don't think that was in the forefront of people's minds. I do think that PG&E has, which is our uh, electrical and gas company that serves Northern California, definitely has had mismanagement because they should have been spending the last 20 years putting electrical wires underground. And because that did not happen, that was the source of this particular fire. So when Michael was driving home from school on November 7th, listening to the radio, the, the news was saying we are having very high winds, it's very dry, PG&E may be turning the power off, we may be have rolling blackouts, but unfortunately, PG&E did not make that decision to turn off the electricity. So the next morning when Michael got in his truck and returned from his home in Chico back to where he teaches school in Paradise, a 20-minute trip, he was looking at this huge plume of smoke and thinking, this is not good. And he got a call from his teaching partner who said to him, well, we might have to do PE in the gymnasium today because of the smoke. And he's looking at this huge plume, which, you know, if you're at school, you don't have that perspective and thinking, we're not going to be teaching PE in the gym. We're going to have to close school for today. So he continues on into school. And when he gets there, he's saying to people, we need to send everybody home. We need to cancel school for today. But at the same time, busloads of kids are being dropped off because already they are evacuating children from other schools to come to Paradise Intermediate School as an evacuation center. And so there are hundreds of kids on their campus. So Michael conferred with the team there, and then he and a couple of other teachers 
directed students into the gymnasium where they gave them basketballs and, you know, different equipment and just kind of tried to get the kids in doing various activities to keep them occupied while they figured out what was going to happen next. Parents were coming and picking up their kids and Michael is standing at the door, kind of connecting children, you know, your mom's here, your dad's here, come and get ready to go with your parents. One of the parents that came to pick up the child, Michael says to him, how are things going out there? He said, the traffic is crazy and I'm hearing explosions now. So propane tanks were blowing up. There were embers falling from the sky. It sounded like rain and it was pieces of shard. And then this dad says to his little sixth grader who comes up to him, well, buddy, we're going to go now. When we go outside here, don't be alarmed because it's very dark, but we're going to be, everything's going to be okay. And Michael looks outside and it's nine o'clock in the morning and it is pitch black. So now they're, you know, they're just there in the cafeteria and they're trying to think, what should we do? And they're not getting information. And so they kind of have a little huddle. And one of the teachers says, okay, well, let's make lists of kids. We'll put them in cars with different people. And so they came up with a plan and they were going to all leave the school. The next thing that happens is that an Oroville city police officer comes in and says, just yells, everybody's getting out now. Get into any car, forget about seatbelts, just jam into cars and leave now. There is no time. So everyone complied. People, there were just three, maybe four routes out of the town, which is one of the big problems. So people got stuck in traffic, congested traffic, just sitting there. One of the teachers had a group of children in the car with her. There was fire on either side. The interior of the car doors was melting and the children are yelling, we're going to die, we're going to die. And she's saying, no, we're not going to die, and just kept plowing forward. Michael was very, you know, he was very generous in talking with me because talking through this again, he's told the story many times, but it was very emotional. We both were in tears at different times. So finally, they got out of paradise. They go to Chico to the fairgrounds first was, I guess, the place that they first went to. And then that became a staging center for the fire. So then they had to move everyone to a church. So, you know, they were working all day long to get people to safe places. In the weeks that followed, they would meet at different teachers' houses, and they were just finding out where are people, you know, this family is staying in someone's garage, this family went to the Bay Area, this family's back east, just trying to understand where the community is at. Then after the Thanksgiving and Christmas break, the school community then moved to an abandoned orchard supply hardware store. And they taught school there for the rest of the school year until June. They were in the garden center, they're having science on aisle five. It was very difficult, but they got through the year. The next fall of 2019, they were at the local high school. So now the Paradise Intermediate School where they were, I think six of their portables were burned to the ground. The adjacent elementary school was completely destroyed. And then the high school had some 
viable classrooms. So there are many fewer kids now in the Paradise community because people have kind of scattered to different places. So they were teaching at Paradise High School in the fall of 2019. And then in spring of 2020, COVID hit. So they were doing a hybrid of, you know, teaching from home and online. And then in the 21-22 school year, they were finally back at Paradise Intermediate School. So they've been back now for a year and a half. I asked Michael, how has this impacted your community and your teaching? And basically, Michael said that from the top administrator down, that everyone was so clear that people come first and that people have to take care of themselves. And the teachers, many of the teachers at the school live in the town of Paradise and lost their homes. So there's just so much that people have had to deal with in terms of loss and trauma and death and then rebuilding their lives and rebuilding their school. And the relationships have been a, a really strong part. Michael had not a bad word to say about anyone. He just felt like everyone from the principal to the superintendent, to his colleagues, to the parents, he said, you know, prior to the fire, they were like begging parents, can you be on the school site committee? Now they have to vote on who can be on the school site committee because everyone really has a sense of community and being together and supporting each other. I asked if the campfire experience and climate change are an important part of their curriculum and he said no. The thing that he said is their priority at this point is social and emotional learning. So they do a lot of every week, they begin the week and they end the week with a school assembly. They have various protocols like quote of the day and virtue of the day. And then they meet daily in small groups for kind of advisories where they pay attention to the social and emotional and academic needs of the children. Michael is a PE teacher, but he takes responsibility for teaching language arts and math and incorporating that into PE. His seventh and eighth graders now were third graders when the fire happened. And so he feels like there was so much learning loss because kids didn't have the opportunity to get kind of the basic reading and math skills that they needed at that time. And when I pushed on has the campfire been any kind of a teacher to you and to your colleagues and to the students? He said that they haven't incorporated it into the curriculum. He said that he's not sure, that he, he wonders about the value of raising old fears. And so while it seemed to me that Michael was interested or kind of thinking about how this experience could be a, a powerful teaching tool for these young people who are going to be growing into a world where these kinds of things happen, continue to happen, and increasingly happen. It isn't part of their curriculum now. So I bundled off into the uh, UPS two days ago, a copy of Regeneration, Ending the Climate Change in One Generation, 
some young adult novels called Two Degrees, which are about middle school children who are dealing with wildfires and floods. And yeah, so I just sent a bunch of climate change resources to keep the conversation going between us. So that's my report from wow. my cousin Michael in Paradise, California. You know, as I hear this, and the same with, with Heather's, the teachers Heather talked to, I keep thinking about the disconnect between, you know, when you're not in that situation, you think, oh my God, this is such a, you know, let's teach what is, let's teach what's happening. Let's teach, you know, let's use this as an entry point to um, talk about this really catastrophically important thing that's happening to all of us in the world. And then the reality is that's not what happens at all. What they do is feel like they're under threat, which they are, and then they take care of each other and themselves. And all the attention goes to that. And it's just such a puzzle to me. It's like, how do we catalyze people's interest in the bigger issue? And also, what is it we want people to understand? I was just thinking about being the teacher. There's so much responsiveness to the climate catastrophe. Like you just immediately respond. Like you have to react. Just natural reaction in schools. Some, that's not like a very common practice. I mean, we're always adjusting to the, the situation at school in the classroom. But so much of it is planned and premeditated, right? We do our anticipatory thing to prepare for students. But then when something unplanned happens that's this large it's like how do you plan to react to that when survival instincts come first and then when you finally kind of like settle down again like opportunity to pre-plan how this is a learning situation (laughs) seems lost yeah I think that the timing really matters they say that what's that old saying when the student is ready the teacher appears so I love that I'm really reflecting on what Michael said about what's the value of raising old fears? You know, why, why would we teach about this? And it separated my thinking into two lines. I believe that when you're struggling with anxieties, one of the first antidotes is information. When you're living in an anxious state, information helps you cognitively have a broader perspective to help calm those fears and anxieties. And then a different state is traumatized. And when you've lived the trauma, When is information damaging because it's reactivating fears that you're not ready to process? And when is information helpful? And again, you almost can't teach something until the children are asking. And how much time will go by before these people in this community can ask, what led to this problem? What what contributed to this? Is there anything we can do to make this better in the future? And it might be years and it might be only months for some people, but the information can't be taught until the learner's ready. So, But Callie, it could also, we don't know if the learners are ready if we're not asking them, if we're not yeah. giving them an opportunity to say, what was it like for you? What do you think now? What do you wonder? You know, I mean, giving them some kind of a protocol, the kids to say, let's look back on this. What feelings did you have? What thoughts did you have? What do you wonder about now? It's the educator's responsibility to open the conversation up and then to go and meet the kids where they are. 
you know, and if they're at a place of trauma or overwhelm or fear or whatever, then you meet them there. But you keep opening it up because they're going to be in different places and there will be different. You can go and meet them at an information place and you can go and meet them at a, an emotional place and you can go and meet them at a, a practical place. There are lots of different ways. Luis, but did it Michael... means it requires the educators to keep on opening the opportunities. I, I want to clarify one thing. Educators have an opportunity to ask those questions, but these are also traumatized educators. And I'm curious if Michael mentioned if they have school counselors. I feel like you know some areas do have school counselors. And sometimes we expect more of teachers than they can do. And I'm not certain if I just lost my home in that community, if I would be ready to lead those kinds of conversations very well. And I think there is a professional role here that, you know, after there's a school shooting or another trauma, we bring in professionals from the outside who can read and regulate some of these emotions. These are big issues. Right. So did they have well, any counseling for the students? Well, and so there's Michael saying that, you know, he doesn't have a bad word to say about anybody. The administration was great. The principals were great. The superintendent was great. The families were, everybody was great, which of course they were. But whose job is it to think about the bigger community structure and, you know, to bring in the professionals, to bring, to set the opportunities up for that? So if the superintendent's traumatized and the principal's traumatized and the school board's traumatized, it's like, who's supposed to move it's it forward? The leadership still has to step to their, the plate and, and do their jobs. But Louise, I'd still love to know. He, he didn't specifically talk about that. No, he talked about how, you know, their programs, their social and emotional learning programs. And he referenced a couple of tools that they use that I actually have been using myself <laughs> lately to regulate my own anxieties about things. But that's not to say that there weren't counselors. I would imagine that there were. It seems to me that the big problem here is that we don't teach teachers to teach in constructivist classrooms. We don't teach teachers how to reveal or uncover what is going on with kids and what they're worried about and what they're excited about and what their interests are. Instead, we, we give teachers curriculum to give to kids and that's what teachers know how to do. And I really think that, you know, we've talked before about how teachers need more deeper disciplinary knowledge. Well, I think it's great when they do, but I don't believe it's the most important thing. I believe that there are so many disciplinary resources that can be drawn upon, that teachers can draw upon and bring into their classroom. But what teachers need to be able to do is to set up classrooms where ch children have multiple ways to talk about what's going on with them, to make connections with literature or math content, and to keep surfacing their ideas so that the teacher can see it and respond. And that's the biggest Thing that we don't teach teachers to do. How can a teacher respond to children at the right time if they don't have multiple opportunities every day to see where kids are at? And they're all going to be in different places. Well, that's what I loved about being a dance teacher. I felt that I got that opportunity every day because I created an environment where the children were making choices and their choices revealed to me what was important to them. So if they got to choose to make a dance, what were they making a dance about? Their uncle who 
didn't make it across the border or their sister who had a miscarriage. And I mean, that was hard for me as a teacher. I was like, I don't even know anything about this topic myself. I was only 24, but it was so real to them. I couldn't stop them from exploring what was important to them. And I think, you know, constructivist classrooms, the arts really provide a way for that to be expressed. In fact, one of the students from Paradise ended up in one of our school districts here in Utah, the Granite School District. They had a visual art exhibit that I went and um, did some reporting on with my mom, who's a photographer. And the piece, the student from Paradise had done a visual art piece on the forest, on the fire. And another teacher was providing them, an art teacher was providing them with processing and learning time. And they had a great statement. I wish I could find it. Maybe I can put it in the show notes. I think that's a really interesting point because it's about choice. When you set up your curriculum in a way that allows kids to make choices about their expressions, then you're going to find out what's on their minds. And certainly like in visual arts, there's this stuff called TAB, which is the Teaching for Artistic Behavior, where they set up material stations. You know, So this is the drawing station. This is the sculpture station with recycles. This is the fibers station. And the kids may, it's like, oh, I want to sew. And so they go to the sewing station, but then they're sewing a little embroidery of, or a little pillow for their dolls that are you know, living in somebody else's house and they wanted to make a little blanket because they, their own home burned down or whatever. Anyway, you get into these narratives through the kids' choices about what they're making artistically. I think what you were saying, Kelly, I think that's right, Lois. And I think that teachers are afraid that they won't have the answers or they won't know what to do in a emotional or triggering situation, right? And I think that that's where dealing with trauma, like dealing with problems is really something that that's what kids need to be learning in school, I think. I wonder how you would talk about that, Callie, because I think it goes to what Paul Hawken in his book has that whole section on agency. We have to have a sense that we have agency and that we can do something and that we can be, we can use our experience in important ways. And information is one way that we develop agency, right? And learning from our experience. So what do you think? I was, thank you for asking. I was talking to an ethnomusicologist in our fine arts college at the university where I work. We were talking about what's the most important outcome of a fine arts college. And he came up with the words creative agency. And that really propelled me in new ways. It isn't about creativity, it's about creative agency. So for the last number of years, I participated in the Trauma-Sensitive Schools Conference. And this is a movement that has just taken off. You know, their first, their conference doubles in size every year and people are really hungry for information about what do we do with traumatized children? What do we do with developmental trauma? We have more and more of these kids who just don't fit in the system, and our system is so rigid. How do we inform ourselves about what are the indicators of trauma-sensitive schools, and what are the basic principles of where to start? And and a couple of their ideas is 
you know, one size does not fit all. We have to realize that these systems where if a child does this, then they get suspended. Well, Les Mis taught us that the reason the crime was committed is far more important than that the crime was itself. There is no policy or practice that should be ever implemented one size fits all. And so often we say, oh, this is what we're going to do for all the kids. And they have some practices in the school where teachers can tap out and call the office and say, I need a 20 minute break now so that teachers have a resource so they don't go over that emotional edge and that kids have a resource. And you teach the children explicitly by direct instruction to self-regulate and to say, I'm not coping. I'm going to put my head down for 10 minutes or whatever it is that you just open dialogue for people to self-regulate and express their needs. And the idea that talking about mental health and encouraging that in, in the faculty room, teachers can say, yeah, I saw my therapist and I saw my counselor and, and I did this great experience and, and I learned this from it. But we need to start creating cultures where talking about our mental health is welcome, embraced, appreciated, valued, supported, and not stigmatized. But my experience in trauma, we cut off our bodies from our experience. And sometimes we behave as if our bodies are here for the purpose of carrying our heads around. And until we embody learning with our full physical self, with multisensory experiences, our body doesn't have a way to process the trauma and move it through our nervous system. And teaching the children to embrace their bodies, love their bodies, acknowledge their bodies, notice, reflect, and respond to the feedback from our bodies is, I think, one of the first places we need to start in our education system. The way you describe constructivism just inspires my heart. And along with that, I think one of the, the second essential things is to teach people to embrace their physicality and to self-regulate through their entire brain-body connection. So I couldn't agree more with you. I think you're completely on track. And there's still something missing. And I'm thinking about this idea of multi-generational conversations, which has been like the whole big idea that we have, uh, that we've been talking about. And a faculty, a school faculty is a multi-generational group. You know, you got people in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, their 60s. And if you get that group of people together, if somebody organizes that, and then you can do all sorts of things in those groups, you can brainstorm well, so what would it make sense to teach? I mean, what opportunities does the fire give us? Well, it gives us opportunities to think about trauma, gives us opportunities to think about forests, gives us opportunities to think about weather, gives us opportunities to think about community and networks of support, gives us opportunities to think about resilience. It gives, I mean, if you could get these people if you can organize them and give them their heads, you know, instead of this imposed curriculum, which is, you know, we got to do this for a test, for a high stakes, for a grade, and instead say, here we are, and what are the opportunities that are coming up because of our lived experience, and let the people talk about it. And that, I think, is where disciplinary expertise can be really useful because. There are different ways that an artist thinks about the forest than the way that a scientist thinks about the forest or the way a literary scholar thinks about the forest or a, a novelist. You know, so 
we need to have the different disciplines and the that kind of educated thinking, but it's it doesn't take the place of it's not instead of living in your body. It's that the mind is part of the body, you know, and so we want the disciplinary expertise and the we want embodied disciplinary expertise and embodied not just in an individual body but in a community body. Beautiful, really and we well need, said. I think, to make faculties into those communities. It's like we need to learn from each other when we're on a faculty. Yeah, imagine a faculty that the experienced teachers share freely and liberally with the new teachers, and the new teachers share freely and liberally. That intergenerational piece, the connection from embodying our own selves and then embodying the community in that intergenerational way. That's why we started these conversations. You, you summarized the vision we had our first summer together when we went, oh man, intergenerational communications, look what we're learning from each other. Really well said, Lois. Grandparents, right? And families and dinners and, right? Seeing what pops up. What do people, you know, asking those prompts that you were listing, Lois, for the entire community to surface the talents and the ideas and the wisdom of everyone. Unfortunately, the time goes by so quickly, we're going to have to start wrapping up. So any, what are our last thoughts that people have? When we started recording today, we had a slow start. We discussed whether we were really ready to record today or not, and how emotionally the, the distractions in the world were you know, making us late for this very session and distracting us in big ways in the world. And from this conversation, my hope is restored. I started the conversation discouraged and kind of worried about the world, and you have restored to me some hope. And I say thank you for that. I think we're doing the embodied processing that we just discussed where we get to be in conversation and on zoom, I get to see your bodies. And when you were talking about intergenerational Kelly and the thought in my mind was like, I am Kelly. I embody Lois. I embody Louise. Like we are this community and there are pieces of my like cellular being that I feel like have come from you because of the time we've spent online and in person. I'm grateful too. It's really a gift to be together. Absolutely. Listeners, we'd like to invite you to join our conversation on Is Climate Change Changing Classrooms by visiting our website, chillpodcast.com, and participating in our online blog. In our next episode, we are going to go to Utah, where Cali leads a professional development initiative that draws its creativity and strength from Native American wisdom and leadership. We hope you'll join us for that episode. The Chill Podcast is produced by the BYU Arts Partnership. Special thanks to James Houston for editing, Tavin Barrowman for the artwork, and Scott Fox for the music. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review. This helps tremendously as we work to bring more people to our Chill Conversations. You can find the show notes and more about Chill at thechillpodcast.com or on social media, our handle is at the chill podcast and that's chill C H L L for Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise. We can't wait to chill with you next time. <laughs>